Welcome to Fandom Media. Yeah, welcome back to Black Sales. We are here to discuss episodes four and five, two episodes this time instead of three. If you're following along with us as the show itself is winding down, I imagine you're having a good time as we are. We've been really enjoying this show in general, and this final season here is not letting us down at all so far. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, definitely. I appreciate the drama that's created, the, the, the dilemmas these characters are presented with, and the richness of the characters going through it all, the performances, the presentation, the visuals. I uh, just appreciate the show on a lot of levels. It's way better than I thought that it would be. I especially appreciate these sort of big moments. You know, it makes sense as you get closer to the finale, there's going to be more and more big moments, but these uh, power plays that the different characters make throughout the series, but this past season... Most recently, this deal that Flint has set up or that Eleanor has set up with Flint and how it's playing out. That was a big moment at the end of episode three that we're kind of seeing how that's coming to fruition in these past couple episodes. Yeah, the show does a really good job of having a bunch of characters and a bunch of situations come together all in a way that makes all of them have to make difficult decisions based on incomplete information and what they think they know about what everyone else thinks. Yeah. And what they think they know, and et cetera. It's a, you can kind of go on and on with that. Sometimes with time pressure on them also. Yeah, and the incomplete information is exaggerated in a show like this when they don't have cell phones and when they're off on ships that are just con- disconnected from the ongoings of uh, the rest of the groups or their plans or whatever else. So. Or the manipulation of information like the legend of John Silver that was being built and that he is gradually living up to. Yeah. Meta Elements. Let's give some credit to the people who are making this quality program. Let's see. Episode four was directed by Mark Jobst. It's the first episode that he's directed, whereas episode five is directed by Alik Sarkarov. I hope I'm saying that right. He's also directed a few Game of Thrones episodes, and he's directed by far the most episodes of Black Sails. I think he's done more than any other two of the directors combined. There's been about maybe nine or ten directors who've done one or two or three episodes, and a couple directors who've done three or four, and he's done eight. Maybe we should call him Admiral Sakharov. Yeah. (laughs) At least Commodore. Two of the other directors that have done a number of episodes are Luke Edlin and Steve Boyum. They also are going to have the next two episodes coming up. They'll be directing the next two. They're the next two most experienced directors of this season, of of this show. Right on, right on. After Alik. And for writers, similarly, episode four had Peter Ocko and Michael Russell Gunn writing their first episodes, the first time they've gotten any writing credits on the show at all. Interesting to see new people working on the final season. Yep. But again, for episode five, you have maybe the two, definitely one of the most experienced and one of the other most experienced writers for the show, Jonathan Steinberg, I mentioned in the last episode. He's done the first episode of every season and has done by far the most episodes. He's done like at least 25% of all the episodes. And a lot of the other writers who've been given credit, some of them have been doing it with Jonathan Steinberg, including this episode's Dan Schatz. This is Jonathan Steinberg and Dan Schatz. So given the difference there, it sounded like episode four had a lot of newcomers on both sides of it, directing and writing, and episode five had more of the veterans. Did you notice differences between the two? I haven't particularly noticed a difference. There there might be one, and I, maybe if I scrutinized it more closely, but there was one particular thing I was looking for that I saw in the last episode and the one prior. 
I suspected that it might be a technique of, you know, one of the directors or another, but maybe just all directors do this, or maybe there's a certain style for the show. You know, maybe all the directors know, hey, do this, or maybe it's as much editing or the director of photography as the director himself, but... There's a technique they use in a show often where rather than having a camera cut from one person to another, both people will be in a shot and the focus will shift from one person to another. In general, it's pretty common when someone, when two people are talking to each other to not always exactly cut from one person to the other at the moment they finish speaking. There will mm. be like this carryover where you're on person A and they're talking. You cut to person B while person A is still talking. Then person B starts talking. And then before you finish... They go back to person A, and that also makes it easier to edit film and audio together when you're able to have these overlaps. But now this show also does that, but additionally they will, instead of just cutting, shift focus. Jonathan Steinberg has also worked on the show Jericho and Human Target. And as long as I'm talking about the writers, I did want to mention the other three main writers, Robert Levine, Brad Caleb Kane, and Dan Schatz. And Dan Schatz is the other... Th- those are the next most uh, experienced writers for this show after Jonathan Steinberg and Dan Schatz. Similar to the directors, you know, there's probably a dozen writers who've done one or two episodes. Narrative. As the show reaches its climax and full completion, what was many semi-connected plot lines is now a few deeply connected plot lines. Everything's becoming intertwined. All the things are coming together. The focusing of the storyline is made greater by... Certain key deaths, so there's more focus and more screen time for those who are still around. Uh, They're all kind of like a final clash of sorts, while everyone's kind of clashing with each other as well. The the sides are fractured and trying to piece together their own sides so they can have this kind of final battle. It has been a neat thing throughout the course of the show that there's all these... uh... It's like a Venn diagram of different characters overlapping who's aligned with each other. And uh, sometimes it shifts. Sometimes people who were together are now against each other. Sometimes two people who are against each other are both with some third party and so on. It's been a complicated, intriguing plotline. And it continues to be so. Despite maybe getting a little pared down to less people, they're still torn, you know? Yeah. I wonder who's going to be left standing, whether on one leg or otherwise. (laughs) And keep in mind, though, death is certainly one way to be left out. (laughs) Those who remain standing uh, might lose everything or lose nearly everything. And that would be a fate similar to death, especially if there's no hope at redemption or no hope at recovery. It certainly seems to have happened to a couple of characters already. Uh, Billy Bones is chief among them. I'd say poor William Manderley, that's his full name, is, is lost his long power struggle for the the kind of the number two spot alongside John Silver. He made two particularly big mistakes, one that we really discussed in, the, in our previous coverage, which is ruining the alliance with the slaves. And his argument with Flint is just, it's just too dangerous. It's kind of, he's just taking it too far. He's, he's too much passion in it. One of the main arguments he has against Flint is that Flint will eventually consume them. But Billy has already proven himself to be someone that's capable of doing great damage to their work based on his own feelings, which mm-hmm. is the the first mistake he made right there. So it's kind of like when uh, earlier in this season, at one point, I think Anne Bonnie made some comment. It might have been in response to something Jack said, but the idea is that there are all these different people who have this common cause, right? They're all working together to seize Nassau. Right. And different characters might word it slightly differently, but fundamentally, that's what they're all trying to do. But they're all doing it for different reasons. And 
sometimes their own personal reasons or their own line along this track starts to become more important than the common goal. Does that make sense? And I think that's one thing that's happened with Billy. He like took on this leadership role while the others were away, while there's a lot of uncertainty, he's setting his ground, these uh, plans, you know. And in the midst of this, he sort of has his own men and his own mission. And when the big plan of getting Nassau has a plan separate from his... Does that make sense? Yeah. It's hard for him to separate the two. Does that make sense? Yes. The, the mistake he made was keep not keeping in mind the big picture. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's understandable because he has this momentum on this plan that he's been working for a long time and has had success with and doesn't see some reason to suddenly stop it because these other people showed up and said, no, we're doing something different now. He's like, hold on, I'm doing my thing here. And like Ambani said, hold on, we're all doing this one thing here and your particular mission's taking over your particular priorities. Yeah. And especially when lives are involved, you know, he pointed out how many of his men died for this cause and he didn't want it to be for nothing. Flint had this bigger picture. He knows how many people have died for the bigger cause. So yeah. it's hard for Billy to see that. And part of Silver's dilemma here in general is that he's not only is he faced with split loyalties and having to choose between different advisors, the advisors are giving him different advice. It's not just their position, but it's their actual advice that is very different and not just advice on what to do, but what they expect. For example, they disagree on how to proceed with Max, and they also disagree on whether or not the men will stand and fight when faced with the soldiers invading at the beach. Flint says that 9 out of 10 will flee, and Billy says that they'll hold. Yeah, I thought that Flint's statement that 9 out of 10 will flee was exaggerated at least. You know, I thought uh, a large number might, but I'm surprised that how much, how little faith Flint had in the men staying to fight. Billy didn't give an exact number, but I think if Flint had said half, if five out of ten are going to leave, I said, really, half? You only think half? I would have been surprised if he thought that many, but he thought nine out of ten. I don't know how much of that was him overplaying the point to make his bargain seem better, you know, but... Another thing that they perhaps don't necessarily disagree on, but that is crucial that I think Flint gets the upper hand on, is understanding the importance of Maddie to Silver. Billy realizes that now, but he surely did not realize it back when he gave the order for his men to fire. Yeah. Because that's something that Silver has a hard time letting go. Maddie certainly isn't taking it personally, but the ruining of the slave alliance is something that she eventually points out to Silver is there's just no way, there's no getting around that. Flint and Billy aren't going to work together, A. B, Billy's the one who ruined the Slave Alliance. So there you go. That's it. That's really what it comes down to. And There is a C, and uh, the C might not outweigh A and B, but Billy did set up the whole scenario. You know what I mean? He did save the day when they were starting to get overcome with Beringer's men. It's not like he has no value or wasn't a friend or he still has men that will follow him. He There are a lot of values to him. It's not, an, that's why, that's why Silver is struggling. It's not an easy decision. Even if it's a clear decision, it's not easy. Exactly. If someone was going to hand you $101 or $100, well, it's close. They're both, there's a value, right? But one is definitely better. If you can only get one, you take the $101, so. I agree. And then, so what's interesting as part of this whole thing is that while there's this kind of struggle to be Silver's number two, the person he actually trusts the most is Maddie. And that's whose advice finally gets through to him, in a sense. Her advice is, of course, crucial, and she works with him in a much different way. She lays things out in a very similar way to Flint. To the point that he even says, now you're sounding like him. And she says, well, is that a bad thing? And that's really interesting. And I think it shows something that's really important 
about both Maddie and Flint that they do have in common. This is not just something that they're sounding similar on. They are very similar in a lot of ways, which is that they are both good at doing what she's done here, which is cutting to the chase and figuring out the best amongst several bad options. You're faced with a bunch of horrible choices, but you gotta pick the best of those horrible choices. Like, instead of that $100 versus $101 example, it's kinda like saying, would you rather lose $100 or lose $101? And some people, when faced with it, it doesn't really, you can't measure it that distinctly. It just looks like a loss versus another loss, and you can't really tell which is bigger. But someone like Maddie is able to tell that one is 101 and the other is 100. Yeah, my example's a lot easier if you get to count the dollar bills out. Well, that's 100, that's 101. But what if they're just laying on a table across the room and you can't quite tell which is which, you know? Yeah, so Maddie seems really skilled at that, and so does Flint. Flint is really good at making those decisions in the heat of the moment. He's really detached, I suppose, or he's fearless, or maybe it's his military training, or just his general experience, or just, just whoever he is. He's consistently made these really tough decisions in the heat of the moment really well, and it's something that Billy doesn't seem to be up on his level at. Silver is at that level. And it's also the type of thing, like, we're trying to make this easy analogy with piles of money, right? But what if the scenario is, you know, Sophie's choice, right? You know, what if it's something that's a, just a tougher thing in the first place? What if you have to, like, sink the boat? You know, you, you're you trying, there's two boats that are sinking, and you have one rescue boat, and you're going to go save. Do you save the one that has, you know, your wife and kids? Or do you save the one that has... The town's wife and kids, and that's really hard to do, right? You know, yeah. And almost any decision you make there, or in some scenario like I'm making up, someone's going to be upset. Someone's going to blame you for doing the wrong thing, you know. And <laughs> assume that you could even figure out which one's right or wrong, you know, if it's as simple as a hundred dollars or a hundred one dollars, you know. Whoever makes that decision, someone's going to look at them as being cold and heartless and ruthless or whatever else, you know. And I think maybe sometimes Billy and other people have done that or wanted to do that, be upset with Flint for some decision that they that he made, but they don't always consider, well, what do you? what's the other decision? What do you think I was going to do otherwise, you know, so... So Flint and Maddie's advice is both very similar. One of the reasons that Silver takes the advice more readily from Maddie, first of all, is their level of trust. But second of all, because she acknowledges how difficult the decision is and helps him work through the emotional aspect of it, which is, well, you're going to have to betray Billy, and that's a difficult thing to do because they have a strong relationship. And of course, her method is extremely effective, and it's also well-rounded. Now, this is an amazing contrast to someone else who has a very efficient and effective way of dealing with this situation and helping Silver work through it, Smack him in the face. Exactly. Israel <laughs> Hands has a very poignant yet blunt way of pointing out it matters less what you pick that you just decide something. Going back to my example about the $100 or $101, Israel Hands saying it's not that big a difference. But the fact that you're waffling over it means you're going to, someone else is going to snatch the 100 when you're waffling. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you're not going to get either. You have to decide. And if it's so close, it doesn't matter as much how you decide as it does how people perceive your decision. Yeah, that was a also frustrating. It's also a frustrating concept that sometimes that you know the confidence that someone has in a decision is more important than the decision itself. And sometimes you end up getting some wrong decisions. But the fact is, we're emotional people. You know, we are going to follow leadership. We're going to be susceptible to someone's cowardice or. Or bravery, you know, that's going to affect our feelings about a decision. So Absolutely. And interestingly, everyone seems to be jockeying for these positions in this new regime here. 
Billy is obviously out. Uh, Flint is obviously still in for now. Maddie is obviously very secure in her position, given their relationship with Silver, and her own power is quite substantial. Israel Hands has carved himself out a new position here very much. He's, he's not only has he shown himself to be an incredible fighter, but now he's shown that he can give some good advice, too, that he is able to see some things pretty perceptively, despite his... His demeanor doesn't necessarily paint him as someone that clever, but he was number two to Blackbeard, and he didn't get that way just by being the incredible fighter that he is. He also demonstrated loyalty. You know, he he swung the axe that took Billy down, so he on some level understands the authority that Silver has and the importance to stay loyal to him. Hands his advice to Flint, bringing up the whole issue of being pushed aside and jockeying for position and all that is something he has an interesting perspective on. Obviously, he was pushed out by Blackbeard, over the issue of Charles Vane, it doesn't seem that he it doesn't seem that Blackbeard really pushed hands away so much as he didn't see him as a worthy successor. He saw him as a number two and no more than that, which is you know obviously that's a very high position, but he didn't see him as a as a full leader or a son even. Right, and Vane was yeah. not only perhaps one of the few people we've seen that could be on Hands's level as a as a fighter, but he was more of a leader, far more charisma. And uh, maybe more vision as well. I'm not sure. But certainly interesting to think about the fact that Billy has created the monster that took him down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some irony there. Yeah. And it's the legend that he created, Silver is actually living up to. And yeah, it's obviously we don't know what the final fate for Billy is, but he's harmed. He's he's in terrible shape and he's lost his power but a recurring theme we're seeing is that people aren't being killed because the person who really should kill them in a strategic sense just can't live with it. Can't live with yeah. the idea. Max can't live with the idea of killing Silver. Silver can't live with the idea of killing Billy. Guthrie couldn't live with the idea of you know, several different things. She brings, she has the whole soliloquy again where she talks about several different choices that she made and how it's all led to this and regretting certain things or wondering how they might have been differently. Another theme that seemed really strong throughout this, this this recent arc is the whole theme of bitterness unleashed, of of grievances really pent up and let loose in a really cruel and brutal way. Of course, the most obvious version of this is the whole scene below decks with the pirates forced to fight. His soldiers already have a lot of pent-up anger and violence. Remember what Beringer said about them not being good men? Uh, you know, in that sense, that maybe they were, or maybe they will be again, but they're not right now. They are on this sort of quest for vengeance, you know? Yeah, that's not and, really a good thing ever, yeah. is it? And they're not even getting that. So, yeah, they're definitely frustrated. And then on the other side, we have the slave revolt led by this man, Julius, who is, you know, that's not exactly coming out of nowhere, but this character himself is new, this leader. Of course, we've talked about Billy at length wanting to damage Flint. We have Eleanor reflecting on her efforts. And this whole issue with the cash is going to maybe cause a fresh wave yeah. <laughs> of bitterness and frustration. And all of this is, of course, coming together in the place where everything has started. The same place that Anne laments is destroying everyone. The same place that Blackbeard said was too much. The same place that everyone is fighting over. The same place that everyone is converging on. Now a Spanish armada hmm. added to the mix. Oof. Guthrie says that in the moment when she didn't run off with Max, her resolve wasn't sharp enough. It's interesting that she put it that way. And that's kind of a 
gruesome parallel to Anne doing what she had to do with sharp, sharp. things. Ah, that was rough to watch. But the parallel between them is is also reflected in that comment that Anne made about how the island kind of ruins them. Guthrie said it in a much more poignant way. She said, amazing this place. It somehow leaves you no choice but to hurt the ones we love. And I thought that was a really great way to put it, a really good summarizing of the dilemmas that we talk about make this show great. All that said, I've been kind of contemplating what, if anything, Nassau represents. I don't know how much design the writers have to make it represent something or if I'm just reading into it. And if they do mean it to represent something, what it might be, probably multiple things. And these characters think very sourly of it. But the fact is, it's also inspired a lot of greatness. It's also generated a lot of wealth. You know, there's these negative aspects, but there's also these positives. And one of the things I was thinking it might represent was civilization, or maybe even more accurately, stability. You know, there are definitely connected things, but on an individual level, a lot of these characters are trying to get to a state of control in their life. You know, Eleanor wants to prove herself as a woman that can run this business. You know, Max in a similar scenario. People who were trying to like make something out of nothing and this has been an opportunity for them to do it. And of course they keep hitting roadblocks and getting set back and whatnot, but they are definitely struggling for success, I'm going to say. Recognition, but on some level stability. Now, not all the characters. For example, Blackbeard, Vane, Anne, they don't want stability, right? So that you know, mm. they they get on board with this mission to get Nassau, but for them, maybe it's more of a camaraderie or a legacy. All these other things. Another thing the island might represent is compromise, and that would lead to the idea of like you have to hurt someone you love. But it's not just you hurt someone you love; it's just you have to hurt person A you love or person B you love, or you have to hurt <laughs> yourself or a person that you know. And that, again, is sort of a compromise thing. And that also is a sort of a, if you go back to the stability thing, sometimes you have to compromise your dreams for the rent right now, you know. And, uh, of course, we see these things playing out in adventurous ways and violent ways and in dramatic ways. But a lot of times they are parallels to our more day-to-day lives, the decisions we have to make and what, you know, your home might represent. It might represent compromise in your life for stability, you know, you've grown out of the craziness of your youth or whatever, you know. One thing in particular I like about the show is how these dilemmas aren't just, these dilemmas aren't just dealt with by the major characters, but these smaller characters that sometimes stay smaller characters and fade away. Sometimes these smaller characters become more important. Perfect example of that is Miss Hudson, the tall redhead in service to Eleanor. She's gradually become far more important. She's been pretty key these last few episodes. Originally, she was a spy for the Spanish, but she didn't want to be. She was forced into it by this one Antonio Grandel, the one that met them at the docks there. And she's genuinely loyal to Eleanor, but. She, her children were threatened. So, I mean, she's not that loyal to Eleanor, (laughs) right? She's going to pick her children over Eleanor, no matter how strong her feelings are. But it's a perfect example of what Eleanor herself is talking about, how the place is forcing her to do bad things to someone she loved. Yeah. And she is herself placed in a conundrum with her own position being difficult. She is set on a mission to convince Woods Rogers to not attack, which... We've seen Woods Rogers is very decisive and determined, and getting him to not do something he's decided to do, not so easy. But, you know, she's able to 
use Eleanor's exact words, using the using some things that they had talked about between them, like called up some emotions, and it was able to sway him. It's probably the only thing that could sway him is is Eleanor. That and a couple cannon shots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we kind of called that one. We did predict the warning shots thing, but it wasn't the ultimate deciding factor. It was this their relationship and things they had shared before that Eleanor knew to communicate through Miss Hudson that would get the job done. So even though it appears that Miss Hudson is able to get Rogers to go along with the plan, he's really only sort of going along with it and not really going along with it at all. He's just delaying. He goes off to do the thing with the Spanish Armada, get to go to Havana, bring them on. By the way, Havana was cool. And this is just another example uh, or more proof of how Rogers is perhaps the most determined guy in the entire story, maybe apart from Flint, the most set on his goal, the most able to keep his eye on the prize as he sees it. And it's Flint himself who understands this kind of thing more than anyone. He understands the resolve of determined men and how much that matters. He understands the resolve of a determined person and how much that matters because he himself is one of those. The one time his confidence is really shaken is when Rackham tells him about Rogers and what he really is and how convincing that is and the bottom line that, no, this deal isn't going to happen. First of all, I'm not signing off on it. And the reason I'm not signing off on it is Rogers didn't sign off on it either. And his decision matters more than Guthrie because he's got the army. He's got the authority. He, you know, and he's the one that's more determined than even she is. And she is really determined. (laughs) But this guy is like on another level. And that really, I think that was a really amazing moment when Flint is actually shaken by that because he realizes the truth of it because he himself is that kind of determined figure and he knows the value of that and how how dangerous a quality it is to have it an enemy. That moment was in general good. It was uh, coming off our realization that we're being duped about who's coming out of the tunnel at what spot and Billy's going to be taken and I'm reminded, oh yeah, rack him. You know, we went through this whole episode because an episode... Four was sort of a, a focus on that, and in on episode five, it wasn't till that last moment when he showed up, wasn't being addressed. It leaves us wondering still, where is the cash? Is it coming? You know, as uh, already when they when we realize what's happening there, it's a little bit unusual. But then after the dialogue between Flit and Rackham, it really sets you into thinking about where things are going, and it was a really good moment. I like that moment a lot. And that's another theme that comes together with all these things is. The rough road ahead. Rogers thinks that civilization is going to be difficult, but that it will overcome. He's confident that it will win in the long run. And he and he believes in making sacrifices for it. Not just sacrifices financially and of, him, of, his, of his body and of other lives, but of his kind of, of his soul in a sense. He's willing to do things that are kind of, you know, that are straight up ruthless or evil almost. Even... Uh traitorous you know he going to spain <laughs> you know like uh, imagine if the king of england heard of this like wait you did what you went where who are we helping what's going on you know <laughs> yeah that's a great point and this is this sort of what maddie says she's the one who kind of brings this concept up in the episode she spells it out for silver saying yeah giving up the cash what did you expect we wouldn't have to make tough decisions like this we're gonna have to make. We're gonna have to sacrifice more than this. This yeah, is yeah. not even the first tough decision. She lays it out really well and really accurately, and 
it's neat that her end game is much different than Rogers's, but they really see things the same way in that it's going to take, it's going to take sacrifice, it's going to take blood, it's going to take effort. That's the other theme, I think, that we're looking at. And that's what I think we're looking at for the show as an ending is we, something we discussed earlier is even characters who survive may not come out of this very well. That's going to be true even for the winners, potentially. Even the ones who come out of, on top in terms of winning whatever fights happen here, they, that may not be enough for them to prosper. It's just the beginning of their fight. Yeah. Yeah. Say, say at the end, the pirates win the island. There. And now everyone's happy? No, mm-hmm. they're just getting started on a new struggle. You know? yeah, so, so now they de- I can't see how they're going to defeat this armada, but somehow something happens. I don't know. Maybe they come out ahead in the long run after getting attacked by the Spanish. Maybe something drives the Spanish away, like news. You know, something that draws them away because they need to go do it. You know, something more urgent. I don't know. I'm just throwing guesses out there. Yeah. But... Whatever it is, that's not all the Spanish. They're a huge presence in the Caribbean in general. So, yeah, no matter what, whoever wins, they've got a lot to do. Fandomedia.reviews. What a world to bring a child into, which is now what we're faced with with Eleanor. That's interesting. I uh, suppose we could have seen that coming or at least guessed the possibility of it. I definitely didn't, and I feel like I want to go back. And watch all the episodes again to see if there were clues all along. Sometimes I'll miss clues on things like that. And uh, I feel like the show pays enough attention to detail. They probably gave us clues that we didn't catch. Hmm. Interesting decision on her part to not want him to find out in quote-unquote this way. What did you make of that? One, I thought just in general, like, maybe it's unfair. There's a lot of turmoil. He wants, She wants him to be able to make his decisions based on what he thinks is right. He doesn't want this... I don't even want to use the word distraction. I don't want to call it child distraction, but I think that's genuinely at least part of her concern. I think that she thinks that down the road, he'll blame the child. Does that make sense? For getting in the way of his ambition. I think he'll he blame... He won't be able to help himself. Right, yeah. Even if he doesn't mean to or want to, it's just a thing that'll end up happening. He'll probably blame her too, you know. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's a good way to look at it. Or at least it's a reasonable fear for her to have. She's very perceptive about this kind of things. Another thing we sort of guessed at was De Groot and some of the others still being alive. Uh, that's the one who had his ear cut off in the early part of the season. He and a few of the other characters, like the samurai, have been around since episode one. And they've managed to survive this long. It's kind of fun to see which of these characters is still going to stick around. Wonder who's going to manage to survive the whole way, if any of them. Uh, who is going to be on the other side of this wall that Maddie's talking about? Build a wall and protect who you can. So that's kind of a bit of foreshadowing is who is going to make it to shelter at the end? Who is going to still be alive? Who's going to you know, not be swept up in all this? Who's going to be the you, who you, who's going to be among the you can protect who you can. We talked about some of our anticipation of what's going to happen in different characters being based on what characters we know are in treasure Island, including Billy bones. But man, I don't see how, like I could see him surviving these wounds that he just got, but I think it would require like, rest and medical attention and so on and even still he's gonna be out of commission for weeks weeks right yeah but they're turning him over to the enemy like i don't see how he's gonna so something i think is gonna happen in the middle here i'm not sure what it is but uh whether he is rescued maybe by his own men or uh maybe by the time they get to that plantation or some of the new priority they don't get there at all who knows but i i current course i don't see how he's gonna live same situation in some ways with Anne, who is probably alive and not in any danger of being 
killed by people who hate her anymore, unlike <laughs> unlike Billy. Yeah. And no one is going to need... And she's not in need of rescue, certainly. But she's also not going to be capable of any sort of action at all, yeah. if she's even you know conscious. But I do think the way they've shown it so far, that she's still alive at this point. And I think that certainly... Jack would be more distraught if she was actually dead. And I don't think we would skip past that moment of him. It would be a really yeah. important moment to, for her to die. And that wouldn't... It's, not, it's, not, it's just not going to happen off screen. Yeah, I agree with that. I do think that she probably should be dead or die soon. You know, the chances of her... In modern times, they won't kill you because you go to a doctor and they have disinfectants and penicillin and stitches and x-rays. But she's... On a boat uh, that was uh, captured, it has been, you know, even if she doesn't, even if her wounds don't become worse and she, her hip wasn't smashed, you know, just say down the road she can walk. I don't think there are enough episodes left in a season for her to be physically operating. She can't yeah. hold a gun. She can't pull ropes on a ship. She can't I run and jump, you know, so. She's alive but out of action just like Billy. Things will still, they they both will have an impact on the story, but yeah, it won't be from yeah. a action standpoint yeah. anyway. Now, another character that somehow might still be alive they're alluding to is Thomas Hamilton himself. What a out-of-nowhere idea. It's an interesting thing. We never, it's true that we never actually see a body or hear a confirmed death. So is that what we're going to see for Flint? Is that what's going to be the ending for him? Is he going to go to this this mysterious place that they send troublesome nobles and that's where he's been this whole time? Is that what's going to turn out to be? Maybe. I When Max was first telling Silver about this place, I... I didn't think too much of it, right? But at the end, the way Silver was like, wait, what families? What families? And I go to the next scene. In my mind, I was like, that was weird. What was the point of that? Why did they put that in there? What would they get me to think about? What was he asking that question? What are they alluding to here, you know? And pretty quickly in the next scene, Silver asks Flint, hey, what if he was still alive? Flint says, not alive. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if he was? Would you drop all this? This this mission that you're on, this line that you're taking, like we've been saying, everyone's kind of has this motivation to get this island. Would Flint abandon that if Hamilton was still around? Now, th the fact that that's the conversation we see happen right after Max brings this up, I can't think of why else they would do that in the show. But then in the next episode, it happens again. Silver's talking to Maddie, and Silver asks her. He's like. Am I enough? Like, what if what if all this battle went away? What if Flint's battle went away, right? That we've gotten caught up in this crusade of Flint to get Nassau. You, you didn't care about this two years ago. You weren't thinking about this. But now we're caught up with Flint. But what if it went away? Then what? Are you still going to be caught up in this? Or am mm -hmm. I enough for you? And you I just don't answer that question. Right. <laughs> and I can't help but wonder if Silver found out or is hoping to find out that Hamilton is still alive. At a minimum, I feel like they're dropping clues for a turn that may come. Especially because when I think about what's going to come of all these characters and how the show's going to end, I have a hard time coming up with it. I'm excited about everything that's going on. I wish there was three more seasons to go, but there's yeah. only like five more episodes to go. And I'm trying to think how they're going to sum all this up. They're even introducing some new characters at this point. So I feel like something's got to happen to suddenly resolve a lot of stuff. And that would be one way to do it. If it turned out that Hamilton was alive, Flint decided to f abandon all this to go back. Because again, let's say it even 
I don't even know who it is that would win. It was like, say they win. When I say they, am I thinking of Eleanor and Rogers? Am I thinking of Silver and Hands? I don't know who they is. I don't know what winning is. But let's say the pirates get the island, right? Flint going to be the governor there? Is that what's going to happen? Is Silver going to be the governor? He seems to be like the leader, but we know he's just a pirate in Treasure Island. He's not the governor of Nassau on Treasure Island. Does that make sense? So yeah. it, I think it would make sense if... Flint finds Hamilton, the the war to get Nassau under control by the pirates, which we know historically doesn't quite happen, is abandoned because Long John sails off of Maddie, who just wants to build around the, a wall around the people she cares about, protect them, and Rogers gets the island? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think something like that, probably, uh, along those lines. Maybe that's the, the gist of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, the details, there will probably be some surprises, but I think that... As far as the high points, as far as them, this, we given that those characters are very likely to survive, we have to come up with something. Or they have to come up with We don't have to come up with yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> That's on them. We're not paid for that. Not yet. <laughs> One way or the other, I am way more interested in the process of how it turns out than how it ends. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think any really great work of art or fiction or literature, TV, movie, or whatever, if it's really good, it can't quote unquote be spoiled. Like if you find out what's going to happen at the end, it doesn't mean the rest of the drama is gone. You know yeah. what I mean? Like if you knew before you watched Star Wars, the Darth Vader is Luke's father. Spoiler. Oh, well, I don't even want to watch this movie now. Mm-hmm. No, it still has all kinds of awesomeness to it. You know, how things happen, the, the, the development of the characters and the performances and Everything else is what makes it interesting more so than reading the last page of the book. You know? Yeah, knowing what's going to happen, it can't all be about that. If, right. if that's the only thing that's interesting about a story, then it's not a very good story. Yeah, yeah. Audio elements. Something that really adds to the amazing levels of drama and tension in this show is the way they enhance those things with music. And in particular, there were two times that were really powerful and interesting in the cho- in terms of what music type was chosen. Both have to do with Woods Rogers. One is Rogers talking about civilization and how inexorable it is and how determined he is to see it through. And th- the music indicates how dark he's willing to go to accomplish this goal. And then when Rogers is being spoken of by Jack Rackham to Flint at the end. It's also very ominous music talking about, no, this man is really determined. You don't know what you're dealing with yet. The music is really hammering that point home. And I thought that was really well done. I agree. Not just the music, but the way they use music in the series has been really good. I've taken notes several times of, in fact, silence every now and then. There's no music. And uh, a lot of times that can have an impact on things. And... There have been a couple times when I noticed silence. I, it was enough that I like took note. In fact, in a, one of the earlier episodes this season, I started to notice some of the background noises, like the creaking of ropes and wood on the boats and the sound of nature or crickets and frogs or whatever on the island. It's harder to notice those things when music is going on. Sometimes it adds a little bit more... I don't know how to say this. It changes the tone, not having music. And depending on what the conversation is, sometimes you maybe can get a little more endeared to the character when they're revealing something about themselves. Sometimes maybe you can feel a little bit more suspense or tension when uh, characters are kind of confronting each other and there's not even any music to fill the empty space. Of course, sometimes music helps with that. And sometimes I think they like get you doubly by starting off silent and the music creeps in. They do a really good job of just having like this lone 
string sound instrument you know just like the bow going across mm. the violin yeah. and it swells it gets louder than other layers of stringed instruments and whatnot come in and fill it up and by the time the end of this four minute scene of dialogue between two characters come it's like dun 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 you know <laughs> like they really build this crescendo of uh power and suspense in the tone of the scene it's really good how they use music I thought one of the particularly good examples that you pointed out earlier in terms of not using music was the brutal fight below decks between the soldiers and the captured pirates. There was no music during that. It was all about the sounds of the fight itself, which they really, there was smashing glass, smashing hands, cuts and, and Groans chains and pain. and pain. Yeah, it was yeah. very much, those were the elements that mattered. They didn't want to distract by adding music to something that already had a lot of sound going on that told a story yeah it was intense enough yeah it's the kind of thing where you could look away from it and you would still kind of know what was happening yeah based on just what we were hearing now in addition to music there are a lot of other audio elements and some of it's you know kind of obvious stuff you know when the the sounds of the oceans when the boats are sailing and the clang and clatter of battle when there's fight scenes going on mentioned a couple times some of the subtle things the, the creaking of the ships and stuff like that one moment I really appreciated, it was sort of this, a really neatly done scene, and, and the show has a lot of these, especially the opening sequences of a lot of the episodes I think are particularly artistically done. In episode five, we start off with almost a black screen, and there's maybe some glimpse of light coming through. It's hard to tell what you're even looking at, and there's this odd sort of clunking, disorganized sound, and it draws out for a moment. And then suddenly, there's a burst of light as Silver opens up the door to the tunnel outside. And you realize the sound you've been hearing is him on his cane going through this underground passage. And the glimmer of light was coming through the door that gets open. It makes it clear what you're seeing now, which is Silver emerging from the meeting he just had with Guthrie and Flint. And I really like that scene a lot. I feel like that's the type of thing that someone had to decide to do. You know, someone had to have a vision to put this moment in. And it does a good job of leading us from one episode to the next. And it was a good use of both audio and visual elements, this contrast of dark and light. Visual elements. Absolutely. They've done that a lot this season, I've noticed, with they, when they have a very distinct split on someone's face where it's very dark on one side and very light on another, which is realistic for the setting, I believe. It's not like there's electric light filling these rooms out. It's it's all candles and torches and sunlight mm -hmm. and inside buildings, so the lighting is uneven. So that makes sense. But it also, I think they're also certainly bringing it out more than would normally be maybe by a little bit, just to just for dramatic effect, but in a good way. The Of course, the fight scenes that they've had have been very quick and brutal. There's not a lot of style to them. They're gritty, realistic in a sense, I guess you could say. There's, they're not, the choreography is more focused on it being desperate rather than being, showing off any kind of skill or any sorts of, you know, it's just not fancy at all. <laughs> yeah. No one's doing like backflips and karate chops and blocking. They're pretty much like just power hammering their punches until someone gets knocked flat and smashed with a Freaking hammer, Jesus! Yeah. Israel <laughs> hands just has his method of with his left hand he block he lets them swing first he blocks their blow and then he just hatchets them somewhere vital yeah. in a leg or the neck or something and it's like just over really fast he just it's a it's skill fearlessness and strategy just all 
resolving in just one second. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that they did made an interesting choice with blood actually splattering on the camera in a in more than just a little. It, it covered most of the screen. I thought that was an interesting choice. That may have been one of the small differences from one of using one of those different directors that that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, yeah. Also, really liked the shot of Havana. Glad to see Havana. Historically, it was the jewel of the Caribbean for the Spanish Empire. They made a lot of money off of it. It was a vital colony, very uh, busy and populous. And of course, pirates loved to prey on Spanish shipping, and it was a war zone for England and Spain. Uh, relating to their own wars back in the mainland of Europe. Don't see the pirates invading that island, though. That was a lot of guns lining that, that harbor. <laughs> <laughs> you need a pirate fleet for that. Yeah. That's right. In fact, it was destroyed by pirates well before this era, more than 160 years in real lifetime. And that convinced the Spanish to invest heavily in fortresses because <laughs> it was worth the investment because of the money they were getting out of it. So they needed to protect it. And we saw that. We saw shots of those fortresses. They looked really cool. They looked dirty, but formidable. So they weren't, and again, not over-stylized. They were, what I, I guess, I don't know that they were realistic, but they probably were. Yeah, I also want to point out again how impressed I am with the presentation of this world, this time, and this 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 land. All these, I say land, but the sea, you know, these ships and this water and the islands and everything. Maybe someone with a better eye than me could see oh that's just cgi but they look like real ships to me and i several times i've wondered uh, how many big masted ships like that are there still i wonder if there's few of them enough that they get if part of why they exist is because shows like this call on them to be in their movies you know or did they build them just for this show how big is the budget for this show uh one way or the other i'm impressed i i they're they're getting great imagery on screen that's going to stick with me there was another neat thing I took note of this episode. I'm sure it's been there all along. I know it's a technique that filmmakers use all the time. I just forget to actively pay attention to it. But you still subconsciously are affected by this, whether you realize it or not. Filmmakers have known this for 100 years, and they do it all the time. When you have two characters interacting, the character, I'm trying to think of quite how to phrase this or what word to use, but the character of superiority is presented higher up. Uh, the camera angle will be lower to the ground, pointing up at the person who is in command of the scene, if you will. And and sometimes that comes from their their role, you know, like the president or the general or, you know, the maybe the husband or whatever it is, you know, the person who's in charge at the moment or the highest ranking or whatever will be presented as such by the camera being lower, pointing up at them. And the other characters will be presented from... A downward perspective. The camera will be right, higher up, right, pointing yeah. down at them. And you could see this, for example, when Silver and Billy have their meeting. Billy said it should just be us, right? And in this scene, Billy is basically trying to get Silver on his side. He's trying to pit Silver and Flint against each other. And despite Billy being taller and Silver being on a cane, the camera angle still shows... Billy is being inferior. It's still Billy coming to Silver. Still Billy's reporting to the commander. He's the one trying to pitch this idea. And Silver is the one in charge saying, no, I'm not buying your idea. And he sits down on the arm of the chair a little bit. He's definitely taking a conciliatory position in general in that scene. Remember, he all he wants is five minutes in exchange for Max. Yeah, yeah. Then later, though, we see when Billy is convincing Silver. So Silver is struggling with the decision. And there's a point when it seems like Billy is gaining 
on his case and starting to win Silver to his side. And in that scene, Billy is higher up and Silver is lower down. Later on, when Hans goes to question Silver, Silver ostensibly is in charge, but he's in this moment of uncertainty and he's sitting down and Hans is towering over him, slaps him. He's the one that's above and Silver is beneath. And Silver stands up to that, you know, right. sort of Silver stands to regain up. his authority. Exactly, yeah. And Hans doesn't really back down. <laughs> um, and then another example was when Flint is in jail and Eleanor's prisoner, she's up higher. She's above Flint. Camera's down on Flint looking up at Eleanor. So th- those are a few examples I caught in these past couple episodes, but I guarantee you they've been doing this the whole series. I guarantee it. And, uh, and I think if you start looking for it in future episodes, sometimes it can even be telling of what's meant to be communicated by the writers and directors, the amor- camera angles they choose to use. Right on. Final thoughts. We've got a lot more to talk about in general. We love this show so much. There's a lot to it. But we'll cover some more stuff in the next episodes when we have more plot material to cover also. For now, Aziz, do you have any favorite moments? Yeah, I absolutely love the line from Guthrie that I pointed out earlier. It's a line worth repeating. Amazing, this place. Somehow leaves you no choice but to hurt the ones we love. I think it was perfect and poignant, and it built so much of the episode, followed that theme, and hey, it gave us a lot to talk about. Yeah, and encapsulates what we've been seeing throughout the show and kind of gives us an idea of what we're going to keep seeing for the rest of it. And how about you? What was your favorite moment? Well, I have a hard time choosing. Uh, One of them was a moment I already mentioned with that scene at the beginning of episode five with Silver coming out of the tunnel. I also like the scene of uh, Miss Hudson coming out of the deck, talking to Rogers when they're arriving at Cuba. I like that shift in, in visual imagery it's a big shift you know inside the the cabin with the wood and the dark light and then the door opens to this wide open sky and blue ocean and bright light and the masts of everything i like that big shift in center scenery in that quick moment they did a similar one i think it was back in episode three when uh the camera starts with Anne bonnie like right just like right on her and as she steps away from the camera it opens up to behind her the big open sky and sea and the masts mm. of the ship as she walks up the stairs that was like leading up to the the battle with Roger's ship i like those moments i, I like it when uh, one camera shot shows two hugely different things i think mm. it's a neat tool that filmmakers have Want to go ahead and thank Thomas Numpersong for the intro music and announcer Jason for helping us out with the voiceovers also want to give a special shout out to our friends over at the Pirate History Podcast. That's a podcast that focuses specifically on piracy in the Caribbean, both the root causes of it and the actual events during that era. So if you're entertained by black sails, you might be very entertained by that podcast. It's time for us to go. We've got to go catch our ship, Queen Fan's Revenge. We're going on vacation to Havana. <laughs>